Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Two more bits of paper. I might get more after, so sorry. Alright. Can you shut the door behind you? Why? Because I'm recording and I don't want to make too much noise. Uh, sorry about that. Hello and welcome to this 22nd episode of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name is Ed Hill and hopefully by now if you've listened before you'll know that this podcast revolves around the journals of my great-great-grandfather, William Scott. Actually, William Mowbray Campbell Scott. For some reason, I often forget the Campbell bit in his full name. I often just refer to him as William Mowbray Scott, but it's actually William Mowbray Campbell Scott. Anyway, this podcast is about his journals written in the 1840s, about his journeys around Europe and then uh, the rest of the world, particularly Mexico, as an engineer in what was the pioneering days of steam so uh, his work really is very much related to the introduction and use of early steam-powered mechanisms particularly in the early part of the journals or the first journal a trip to italy where he works as a train driver on one of the very very earliest railways in italy actually it's the, the second earliest railway and I've been doing a little bit of research uh, recently. It seems that this was not that uncommon because really locomotive technology at that time was mainly British made. Certainly in Europe anyway, these engines were being exported to Europe and it wasn't that unusual that they would also, as part of the export package, as you would say, would have English or British drivers accompanying them to their location wherever it would be around the world so just gonna say the usual thing that if you want to engage with me on social media regarding the podcast then you can look me up on twitter or uh, as it's now called x <sighs> not inspiring name is it oh dear anyway x as it's now becoming known as I wonder if it would be a situation, sort of situation, a bit like Hoover and vacuum cleaners, that one and the two become the same, and so Twitter will always be what people refer to X as anyway. You know, the uh, the brand name becomes more important than the product. Sorry, I'm getting sidelined. <laughs> sidelined into brand promotion, which I didn't expect. So, yes, the account on Twitter, let's call it that for the moment, it's still the universally accepted uh, nomenclature. I can never say that word. Nomenclature. <laughs> Name for the social media interaction service. It's Scott of the Historic, and that's at 3G Grand Tour. So that's the number 3G Grand Tour. And it's great to get some feedback from people on there. Recently, there's been uh, some people getting on there and saying a few things about the podcast, which has been very nice. And as I said before, it's probably the easiest way to talk about the podcast. Uh, just to say the usual thing, these podcasts are available on pretty well every podcast platform out there. So iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, all those ones that it gets distributed to any of those you wish. And there's the actual Acast site on which it's um, posted on as well. So yeah, if you Google a grand tour with my great great granddad, then that will come up these days at the top of the search engine results there is a uni um sorry mastodon account that's at scotted at universodon.com i've just started an instagram account and that's ed's 3g tour and that's ed's with two d so e d d s number three g tour 
it's 3G Tour. That's the Instagram account. But I have to say, probably not worth going on there at the moment because I haven't really posted anything much yet. But I hope to put a bit on there. And the podcast is also distributed to the YouTube as well. So there is a YouTube channel. Basically, the episodes get posted up there as audio files, so you can listen to it as a podcast on YouTube. But I'm hoping to start doing a little bit more visual stuff on that channel as well. Again, if you Google it or put that into the search engine or into the YouTube search engine, Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad, that should come up alongside all the hilarious exploits of Jeremy Clarkson and... uh, James May et al. on their Amazon Prime Grand Tour multi-million pound television programme. Hopefully you'll see my one on the list of things available as well. (laughs) Uh, This is not a multi-million pound production, as you may have realised. So I'm waffling on much too long, and I must get on with uh, what's in this next episode. So William is continuing his journey from Milan to Genoa, where he's going to inspect these imported railway locomotives that have been sent from the United Kingdom to Italy, and they're being imported into Genoa. And um, then they're going to get transported to Milan by road. So basically he's continuing this journey, and he's going through Pavia, which is a quite big city on the way in between um, Milan and Genoa, and then he ends up in Genoa. So in this episode, again, a bit like the previous episode, my explanation of things is sort of dominated by two major things on this journey. One is Pavia and the other one is Genoa. And I think, if I remember rightly, later on in the journals, he writes about Genoa again in more depth. In this one, he doesn't go into a huge amount because he says, I'm busy attending to the engines but i'm sure as i say in the podcast i'm sure he must be looking at some sort of reference book to talk about Genoa in the way that he does bearing in mind as i have to quite often say these journals in the first two volumes of them are being written about four years after these events have happened because they're actually being written while he's in mexico so he's actually writing these in about 1844 writing about 1840 And so I'm sure he has some sort of reference book with him or whether he had notes. That's why he manages to divulge quite a lot of sort of historical information about Genoa and stuff. So basically that's where we begin. It's basically him continuing his journey, uh, talking about Pavia on the way to Genoa. I do hope you enjoy this next episode. And once again, thanks for tuning in again if you're returning to the podcast. And uh, if this is the first time you're listening to it, um, I hope you enjoy it. And I hope it encourages you to listen to the previous episodes. And that includes an introduction episode, which explains more about the history of the actual journals in my family and how they were passed down my family and how I prepared them for the podcast. Well, let's join William again on the road to Genoa. After travelling five miles from the Sotosa, we were within the city of Pavia, where we were to stop for the night. Pavia, once the capital of Lombardy, though shorn of its ancient splendour, still offers considerable interest to the traveller. It boasts no less than three colleges, the Borromeo, that's the Collegio Borromeo, the Cacea, and the Gisleri. The first, on which no expense has been spared, is a fine specimen of the architecture of that period, 1570. Spacious and imposing externally, the interior does not disappoint the expectations raised. The Great Hall is a truly splendid room, and decorated with frescoes in the first style of art by Zuccari. So that's uh, Federico Zuccari, 1540-1609. The frescoes represent scenes from the life of St Charles Borromeo, its founder, whose memory is not less venerated at Pavia than it is in Milan. The building is certainly highly honourable to the munificence of its projector and founder. It contains an excellent library, a botanical garden, and extensive apparatus for the study of chemistry, astronomy, etc. Just to mention the Borromeo and Gisleri colleges, they're still around today, and they are two of the oldest colleges in Italy. The Cathedral of Pavia is built in the Gothic style of architecture and is a very ancient building, but has undergone considerable repairs within the last few years. In this church, they pretend to point out to the visitor the tomb of St Augustine, 
but at this day there are few persons of any knowledge who would believe it. The tomb at any rate is a curious and interesting work, richly decorated with innumerable bas-reliefs and nearly 100 statues, and bears evidence of having been executed in the latter part of the 14th century. They also show you an old pole with an iron point, and recite a long but rather unsatisfactory story that this was the lance of the celebrated Roland. So he was a famous military leader dating back to the time of Charlemagne. Indeed, in this cathedral, they are more ambitious to put forth claims to the possessions of antiquities than they are of being scrupulous in respecting their authenticity. The high altar of this cathedral is in very good taste, as it is also dedicated to the Virgin. The chapels and altars are numerous, and contain many ancient paintings and sculptures. The number of ancient monuments is also considerable. It is a building in which the antiquarian has ample scope for observation and conjecture, and the general effect of the edifice is solemn and pleasing. The Church of St Michael is also an ancient building and has some bas-reliefs on its front. The interior is also decorated with some curious frescoes and are the works of a native of Pavia of the name of Giotti. There is also a noble bridge over the river Ticino, built in the latter part of the 14th century. This bridge is built of granite, and upon a plan of which we see few, if any, of that material. The road is covered with the same material, and its great inconvenience has been felt of late years, as the arches that cross the roadway are so low. In fact, out of our six locomotive engines for the Milan and Monza railway that we had to transport, we were obliged to go round by Turin, Navarra and Buffalora with five of them. The streets of Bavia are in general broad and straight, and the houses good, of the public buildings, the most remarkable are the ecclesiastical ones. The trade of Pavia is small, the principal branch of manufacturing industry being silk weaving. There is also excellent cheese made in the neighbourhood, population 26,000. The city of Pavia is also the capital of a province of the same name, which is bounded by the province of Milan and Lodi. The Duchy of Parma and the Ticino River, which separates it from Piedmont, marks one of the boundaries. Its superficial extent is 320 square miles. The surface is generally speaking level, and it is remarkably fertile, so much so that it is frequently called the Garden of Italy. Population 117,500. Leaving Pavia by the bridge over the Ticino, we traversed level country for several miles, which was pretty thickly inhabited. The villages are very neat and frequent, they were in general surrounded by beautiful gardens and orchards. On our journey we passed through Vergara and Tertona, towns of considerable size and well built. In the afternoon we crossed the Apennine Mountains. These are neither so steep nor so lofty as the Alps. They are covered to the top with trees, particularly chestnut trees, the fruits of which in this district is the principal food of the inhabitants. On the Apennines are some pretty large valleys and some picturesque lakes. Immense fragments of detached rocks are frequent in many places. But wherever there is the slightest chance of the soil appearing again, there has the hand of man been at work. The Genoese are a more hardy and industrious rank of people than is to be found in any other part of Italy. Having gained at the summit of the pass, we descended at a good speed and arrived at the city of Genoa about midnight. I just thought I'd stop at this point while William's discussing his observations of Pavia to talk about a few things. The first thing is when he's talking about the Cathedral of Pavia. Firstly, we should clarify that the church that William is walking around is not the current Pavia Cathedral or Duomo di Pavia. The church he's actually walking around is one called San Pietro in Cieldora or St Peter in the Golden Sky. And at the time William was walking around it, that was the official cathedral of Pavia. And the one that is now the cathedral is another similar building of a similar period. But I suspect maybe why that was chosen now as the cathedral is it's a more standalone building. And apparently it has some architectural and artistic input from Leonardo da Vinci. But anyway, that's not the one William is talking about. William is talking about San Pietro in Gialdiora. And when he says scarcely anyone would believe that the remains of St Augustine were here, well, William, you better believe it, because they are. Within the realms of 
if anyone can be sure if any of these remnants and remains of saints really are what they're said to be or claimed to be. Apparently they were thought to be here, then there was more discovered in a box which were marked St Augustine, also known as Augustine of Hippo. Anyway, there was actually quite a big debate about whether these remains, they were found by a stonemason apparently who was doing some work in the cathedral and they had the word Augustine written on them, but um, that wore away. So there was this sort of debate as to whether they really were his remains or not. Basically, there were some quarrels about whether they were his remains between various groups of monks, I think it comes down to. So the Pope at the time said, look, you've either got to decide, yay or nay, whether they are St. Augustine's remains. And they said, yay, <laughs> they are. So that's how they decided they were. So they are there, and there is quite a big monument there inside the church, which is the one William's describing with all these statues and bas-reliefs on the front of it. So that must have been the one he was looking at, because it is festooned with various stone sculptural figures depicting the life of St Augustine. So it's got a pretty good claim to be the place where his remains are. The other thing I'll just mention again, I did touch on it, was this character Roland. He says this spear or rod is said to be the spear of the celebrated medieval leader Roland. Roland is a bit like a character similar to King Arthur or perhaps more accurately it would be someone like Lancelot or Gawain. They call them these stories, the matters of France, which are kind of like the historical myths and legends about the founding of France in the time of Charlemagne. And actually, there is actually a similar thing called the matters of Britain as well, which are the Arthurian legends. So this Roland character is a bit like one of the characters from the Arthurian legends. And he became from what seems to be very scant actual historical facts and figures about his life he became mythologized through uh, minstrels i don't know if that spear is still in the church there there's a site where he had a sword called durandel i think it was something like that rather like excalibur he had this sword that was sort of indestructible and could apparently cut through stone anyway there's a picture of it supposedly lodged in the uh, stone of a sort of cliff somewhere in Italy near here rusting away and it's said to be his sword his magical sword but um probably not <laughs> anyway so yeah very similar kind of characters really very sort of similar stories to those found in the Arthurian legends the last thing I was just going to talk about was um, the Apennines which William talks about this mountain range of course if you look at the map of Italy the Apennines are basically the mountain range that runs right down the middle of Italy, pretty well from the north all the way down to the south. And uh, in the region where he is, of course, they're quite close to the Alps, so they sort of connect to the Alps and then continue down the length of Italy. As William says, they're not as high as the Alps and they're generally not, although there are a few snow-capped peaks, they're not as snow-capped as the Alps would be, but very rich in flora and fauna. In fact, they are still home to the Italian wolf. So there's a few Italian wolves who still live in the Apennines. And the Italian brown bear as well, known as the Marskin bear. So there's a few of those still living in the woods of the Apennines as well. And of course, wolves were famous in the story of the founding of Rome. Romulus and Remus were meant to have been raised by a female wolf. A bit like Mowgli in the Jungle Book, I suppose. Sorry, yes, there was one last thing I did want to touch on here. This bridge that William talks about over the Ticino River, it's actually called the Ponte Coperto or Vecchio, but Coperto means covered bridge. And there is a bridge there now, but the bridge that's there now was built really as a sort of copy of the one that William's looking at. It's an interesting design of bridge, as William says, because uh, it has the stone bridge bit part of it going but then there's this covered bit the actual walkway is covered with almost like a cloister really and a roof and that's why William said it was inconvenient because they couldn't actually get the steam locos over it to transport them from Genoa to Milan so they had to go a long route around or a longer route around to get them to Milan 
but the bridge that's there now is a similar design because unfortunately the one that William's looking at, which was built around, I think, the 14th century, so it was this kind of medieval bridge that was actually badly bombed in the Second World War. And so after the Second World War, they decided the best thing was to demolish the rest of it. And then they rebuilt this copy of it. But it's not exactly a copy. There's fewer arches. I think the original one had seven arches going over the Ticino River. The newer one has five. But it does have this covered architectural bit over the walkway of it. And actually in the middle of it, there's a kind of little chapel as well, which was also on the original. So as you get about halfway over there, there's a little church or chapel where you could say a little prayer and then continue your journey to the other side of the river. But the one that's there now, the Ponte Caperto, looks pretty similar to the medieval one, but it was actually completed in about 1950, I think. So that's it. Just thought I'd fill in a little bit more background about some of those things that William's discussing in Pavia. May 3rd. As I had a great deal of business to attend to during my three-day stay in Genoa, I had not an opportunity of seeing so much of this fine and ancient city as I should have wished. But I will endeavour to describe it as well as I am able from the slight observations I was able to obtain. Genoa is the capital of a province of the same name, belonging to the Sardinian states. On the land side, the city is surrounded by a double line of fortifications, the outer ones being extended beyond the hills that overlook the city. The harbour is enclosed and made secure by two moles, the city laying in a semicircular form around it. The city of Genoa has been frequently styled the Magnificent, partly because of the beauty of its situation, and partly on account of the splendid palaces of its wealthy nobility. From the sea, Genoa presents a most imposing appearance, but notwithstanding its numerous and splendid palaces, it can scarcely be pronounced really beautiful, for, in consequence of its confined site, and it being built on a declivity, that's downslope, the streets are frequently narrow and so steep that but a few of them can be passed in carriages or on horseback. There are, however, several remarkable exceptions, as, for instance, the Strada Nuovissima, so that's now the Via Caroli, the Strada Balbi, that's now the Via Balbi, and the Strada Nuovo, that's now called the uh, Via Giuseppe Garibaldi. These streets possess both regularity and beauty. The edifices, or rather palaces, are built of fine marble, which they are fortunate enough to obtain in large quantities from the neighbouring quarries. These buildings display not only the attractions of architecture, but as I was informed, the interiors are richly ornamented with paintings and sculptures by the first masters. The principal of those palaces are the Durazzo, Doria, Serra, Locari, Carrega and Balbi. The Palazzo del Signore, so that's uh, now known as the Palazzo Ducale, or Ducale. The Palazzo Ducale is a fine building and was the residence of the Doge of Genoa in the days of its independence and republican greatness. At this point, I'm just going to point out that this whole area of Genoa is architecturally very, very beautiful and known as the Roli of Genoa, and it's actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And that word Doge is like the elected ruler of the Republic of Genoa at the time. It's just a Doge is just a term as a sort of president, something along those lines. The arsenal is situated near the Doge's palace and is pretty well stored with munitions of war. It also contains many ancient military and naval trophies. Over the principal gate is placed the rostrum or head of an ancient Roman galley. It is supposed to be the only one extant in a complete state. It resembles the head of an ox, and certainly has the appearance of a venerable relic of former days. The Cathedral of Genoa is considered a chef d'oeuvre in architecture. I think, as we've said before, that just means masterpiece. The Cathedral of Genoa is considered a chef d'oeuvre in architecture by the inhabitants of that city, and it certainly is a most splendid building. Whether we consider its external magnificence or its interior decorations, its altars are superb in every respect glistering in gold and gems, and formed of the rarest and choicest marbles. Its numerous chapels ornamented with choice sculptures, the beautiful stained glass that fills its windows, 
and its pavements of many colours are of rare workmanship. All conspire to render this edifice worthy of the pride and glory of the Genoese. The Church of Annunciation, the Basilica della Santissima Annunziata del Vestato, <laughs> I think we'll call it the Church of the Annunciation. <laughs> the Church of Annunciation is also a very elegant building, rich in the choicest works of art. That of the Carignano, again the Basilica of Santa Maria Santa de Carignano, is also entirely built of marble and was erected at the expense of a private citizen of the name of Sauli. He was called Bendeli e Sauli. His grandson also erected another monument of equal magnificence, the bridge of the same name, which is of great height, connecting two hills and forming the most favourite promenade of the inhabitants, and not without reason, for there are some most splendid views to be obtained from it. I do remember trying to find out more about this, and I don't think it's there anymore, this particular bridge and sort of pathway he's discussing here, but it's possible if I went to Genoa I might be able to identify it, but I think it may have been uh, demolished since William's time. There are very few fountains for public use, but they abound in the private homes, scarcely one of any size being without one. The great hospital for the sick and infirm, and the Albergo de Poveri, or poorhouse, are fine, large and commodious buildings. The harbour of Genoa is in the form of a semicircle. It is enclosed by two moles or piers, Il Molo Vecchio, or Old Mole, on the east side, and Il Molo Nuova, or the New Mole, on the west side. In the centre of the larger is a smaller one, which is used for refitting and preserving the national galleys. Two towers are erected on the moles, one is a lighthouse, and the other for the defence of the harbour, which would be about their ears in less than an hour if one of Her Majesty's large steamers or line of battleships were laid alongside it. Rule Britannia, Britannia rule the, <laughs> the principal public walks are the quay, the square of Aqua Verde, the walls of the harbour, and the alleys or groves of Aquasola. Genoa is a considerably busy place, but nothing to what it was during the Middle Ages. Its chief exports are olive oil, grain, raw silk, and various sorts of fruit. The manufacturers are of considerable importance. Velvets, damask, black stuffs, and stockings. These collectively employ about 1,500 looms. Also of cloth, cotton hose, hats, my favourite macaroni, candied fruits, chocolate, white lead, etc., White lead, basically, it's a kind of white powder, a sodium carbonate, I think they describe it as, that uh, is a sort of lead that they used to put in paints, and uh, it was used as an additive for various things as well, putty and things like that. The silk manufactured at Genoa is of the finest and best quality. Some of it is obtained in the province itself, and the rest is brought from the Calibra, Sicily, the island of Cyprus, and the Levant. Genoa was at one period of its existence one of the most considerable commercial cities of Europe. At the downfall of the Empire of Charlemagne, Genoa erected itself into a republic, until the 11th century shared the fortunes of the cities of Lombardy. In 1174, Genoa possessed Montserrat, Monaco, Nice, Marseille, nearly the whole coast of Provence, and the islands of Corsica and Elba. In 1250, they had the whole trade of Constantinople and the Grecian states, and at about that period they took possession of the town of Theodosia in the peninsula of the Crimea and obtained the rich commodities of India by the way of Caspian. Having arrived, as it were, at the pinnacle of greatness, the Genoese began to quarrel amongst themselves. The city was continually convulsed by civil discord and party spirit. The hostility of the democrats and aristocrats and of the different parties amongst the latter occasioned continual disorder. This being the state of things at home led to disasters abroad. In 1474, Mohammed II took from them all their settlements on the Black Sea. From that period to 1730, Genoa was continually on the decline, and in that year Corsica, the last of her foreign possessions, revolted also, and in 1768 was ceded to France. When the neighbouring countries submitted to the French in the year 1797, the neutrality which the Republic had strictly observed did not save their fluctuating government from ruin. Napoleon gave them a new constitution, formed upon the principles of the French representative system, 
Two years afterwards, a portion of the territory fell into the hands of the Austrians. But the late fate of Genoa was decided by the Battle of Marengo. In 1802, it received a new constitution as the Ligarian Republic, and at last it was incorporated with the French Empire, at which time it possessed but a shadow of its former greatness. In 1815, the Congress of Vienna, that high court of injustice, assigned Genoa with its territories to Sardinia, stipulating that it should have a sort of representative constitution. Genoa is now the seat of an archbishop and possesses a senate, a high court of justice and a commercial tribunal. The government of Genoa is administered by a commission appointed for the purpose, which is divided into three departments, that of internal affairs, finance, military and marine. Genoa was the birthplace of that celebrated man, Christopher Columbus, the great navigator and discoverer of the American continent, who, after years of supplication to the different powers of Europe to furnish him with ships to traverse the Atlantic, at length he obtained them from Spain, and after being the means of laying the foundation of the after subsequent greatness of old Spain, was basically thrown into prison and shamefully treated. His remains were first interred in the island of St. Domingo, but were afterwards removed to the cathedral of the Havana in the island of Cuba, where they are now deposited on the left of the altar, together with the chains he wore when in prison. A marble monument is erected in his memory, which I saw on my visit to the city. In speaking of the Genoese of the present day, the higher classes are frank, hospitable and generous, and distinguished by a love for the fine arts, as the generality of their palazzos will bear witness. The lower classes, brave and courageous seamen, industrious, hardy and preserving husbandmen, farmers, and of their mulleteers, well, mule drivers, <laughs> and carriers, are men capable of bearing great fatigue in their journeys from Genoa to Milan, which generally occupies five days. They seldom enter a house, and, even when the weather without is very severe, never sleep under a roof, generally selecting a spot on the road where their mules can feed. Then, at this moment, they turn them loose to help themselves, and the men having their provisions in a bag, generally consisting of rice and bread, partake of the slightest repast, lay themselves down to rest for a short period, and as soon as they considered the mules sufficiently refreshed again, pursue their journey. Genoa is 150 leagues southeast of Paris, 90 leagues west of Milan, and 26 leagues southeast of Turin. Population 80,500. So I'm going to stop at this point to say a few words about Genoa, because obviously William's going into quite a bit of detail here about it. And when he's talking about the history, this is definitely one of these moments when he must be reading from some sort of reference book himself about it, because uh, uh, to be fair, his history of it is pretty well accurate. And bearing in mind, he's looking back writing this four years later, roughly. So he must be looking at some sort of book about Genoa or something, or maybe he made notes at the time, as I've discussed before, it's possible. But if he was so busy dealing with the inspection of the steam engines, I doubt whether he'd have all this time to, at the time, know about the history of it. But anyway, I think it's important just to put Genoa in the context, really, of Italian history overall. Genoa was a maritime state that grew to prominence in the 16th and 17th centuries and it's very much like Venice. So on one side of the Italian peninsula near the European coast, so on the eastern side you have Venice and then on the other side, on the western side, you have Genoa and at this time and through the ages they really were very much rival maritime states trying to gain riches and influence by their trading routes through the Mediterranean and further beyond. And ultimately, I think it would be fair to say that Venice came out on top, or was a sort of richer state, and that's possibly because of its location being a bit closer to Greece and that eastern side of the Mediterranean and then trading into Turkey and beyond. But Genoa was very, very influential as well, and it built up its wealth to be a very rich maritime state and it then focused and maybe this was because Venice was more successful as a maritime trading country its focus turned to banking anyway there's a lot of wealth involved it's called a republic because it's run by a group of people now it's a small group it wouldn't be a democracy as we recognize it today 
It was run by a cartel of very rich noble families who make all the decisions about what happens to Genoa. And the Doge, who is elected as the equivalent of the president of the state, would nearly always come from one of these noble families that owned and ran Genoa. So in this small cartel of the wealthy, every two years a Doge would be elected and he would be the equivalent of the president of the nation for that period. It was democratic in the sense that a democratic process had happened, but it was in terms of the wider population, it wasn't very representative. So Genoa, essentially, you can call it the equivalent to Venice, but on the western side of the country and not the eastern side. And this Roli of Genoa, now a UNESCO World Heritage Site, well, it's called the Roli of Genoa because... Roli means list, so it's just list of palaces in Genoa. And there was an idea amongst the noble ruling families that Genoa should be a grand place for people to visit and pass through. And so it was decided that all these grand palaces would be built. And when visiting dignitaries and ambassadors and VIPs would visit the city, they would spend time hosted by one of these noble families in these magnificent palaces. And incidentally, later on, it was quite often a place where people doing the grand tour would also stay, because they were usually aristocratic bods too. So there is a link there with the grand tour. If you look at the Roli of Genoa, there are 42 of them that have been listed as World Heritage Sites by UNESCO and it's because it's apparently one of the first examples where there was a urban planning idea that was intended to say we will turn this part of the city into a architecturally splendid area full of baroque magnificence and I'd love to go there it does look fantastic so I'd say <laughs> do you know these days is Venice's um, rather forgotten about sibling certainly architecturally, but definitely worth going. So that's the Roli of Genoa. So I just think it helps to explain the context of Genoa and also another reason why it became successful as a maritime power was because of its geographical location and the geographical aspect of it. It is this semicircular arch on the coast that obviously was a very good place as a harbour. Then, of course, that was kind of augmented by adding these moles and piers and things to make it a safe place for ships to moor up in. And so that really is part of its success as a port. Apparently, it's still one of the biggest ports in Italy to this day. William mentions that bridge where I said I couldn't find any more modern reference to it. And whether that was demolished, I don't know. It's hard to tell because, of course, these cities get so much bigger than they were in William's time and so much architectural things change. Rather sadly, William mentions the bridge going from one hillside to another. And recently, the most famous thing about bridges in Genoa was back in 2018, there was a road bridge which went from one hillside to another. The city, I imagine, much further back towards the mountains. You may remember it collapsed and it had been built in the late 60s. And this section of the bridge collapsed and it killed 42 people. They've subsequently rebuilt it in a much simpler design, actually. The original one was a kind of concrete suspensions bridge, and apparently from day one there were problems with the concrete and its civil engineering. I think it hadn't been quite built to the standards that had been specified by the architects. Anyway, the bridge that collapsed was the bridge Ponte Mirandi, and I think that was after the architect who originally built it. I think it was finished in 1967, and... The bridge that is there now and replaced it is called the Genoa St. George Bridge that reopened in August 2020, I think, or it was inaugurated in 2020. As I say, it looks a much, much simpler design than the one that collapsed in 2018, killing all those people, unfortunately. But if you look at the pictures in a way, it perhaps does give you an idea of this uh, geographical thing that William's talking about, about how Genoa is nestled in between these two hillsides then going down to the coast and the declivity, as he calls it, making all the streets sort of compact, I think would be one way of putting it, and also at an angle. So I suppose Genoa was a relatively difficult place to build on. I'll just very briefly touch on the Cathedral of Genoa as well, as William mentions it. 
known as the Duomo di Genova, Cattadrelli di San Lorenzo, dedicated to St. Lawrence. It's quite a distinct building, this marble colour, but as William describes it, because it's got these strata or courses of marble stone. One layer is made of white marble and another layer is made of a darker marble. So um, it's got this sort of black and white strated effect around the arches and going up the bell tower and stuff. So it's quite distinctive looking, like a giant licorice also, really, I suppose. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> apparently during the Second World War, the British Navy, in a campaign called Operation Grog, <laughs> decided to bomb Genoa. Obviously, we were trying to maintain our superiority in the Mediterranean as a naval power. And, yeah, in the Second World War, apparently we bombarded, you know, and although we were not meant to, um, <laughs> due to some rather poor aiming, we uh, shot a shell through the uh, cathedral. But, miraculously, it didn't go off. And uh, apparently it's still exhibited there today in the church and... Uh, thought to be a sort of miracle that this uh, this errant British Navy shell didn't do any more damage than uh, just piercing through the uh, side walls, I think it was, or the roof. There's quite a funny bit there where William describes how a current British Navy ship, if it was moored alongside one of these moles in the harbour, would uh, destroy it in no time at all. Or the defence or lighthouse bit would destroy it in no time at all. Of course, by that time, ships would have been a lot bigger than the ones that the harbour was originally designed for. But, of course, that's no longer the case now, as I say, because Genoa is a very big trading port. So I'm sure it's all set up for things like container ships and stuff like that. So I imagine is somewhat massive. Now, the other thing I did want to touch on is something that William mentions here. It's about Christopher Columbus who was, uh, of course, famous for his exploration and discovery of the Americas, but was originally born in Genoa. And this is one of these situations where you kind of do go down a sort of rabbit hole of history, really. Not to say too much about Christopher Columbus himself, because you can Google that or look into any encyclopedia and you will learn all about his history. Although one thing I do think seems forgotten, but is actually exploration of mainland America was pretty well non-existent. He only reached the actual land mass of North and South America, as we know it, on his fourth journey, and that was really just Central America, the narrow bit between the two continents. So um, really most of his time was spent exploring the, the islands of Cuba and Hispaniola and that bit, and the sort of Caribbean. So it's slightly odd he's become so associated with the Americas. Well, he was actually intending to reach the Far East, wasn't he? But uh, America appeared in the way. But really what I wanted to touch on this thing was the remains that William mentions because he says he saw them in Havana. And I don't know quite how I got onto this connection, but there is a lot of controversy about the remains of Columbus and exactly where they are and where they ended up. Now, when he first died, I think most of them were buried in the Cathedral of Seville, but Columbus himself, along with his son, requested that he be buried out in the Americas. So they were then exhumed, I think is the word, and then they were taken to San Domingo on the island of Hispaniola, which is now the Dominican Republic, and they were buried there for a while. And then when the French acquired San Domingo, the remains were then moved to Cuba, to Havana, and this is where William says he saw them. Anyway, they get moved around, some of them get split up. We thought some of those remains remained in the Havana and San Domingo area, and some of them went back to Seville and uh, are in Seville Cathedral. And the ones that are in Seville Cathedral have had DNA tests done on them, and uh, they are probably thought most likely that they are his remains. But then there are others that are back out in the Havana and San Domingo or the Dominican Republic. They haven't been tested. But, and this is what I thought was quite odd, and I'd never heard of it before, but in the Dominican Republic, in an area called San Domingo, there is this thing called the Columbus Lighthouse. And it's this huge monument that was built to commemorate Columbus's 500th anniversary of discovering the Americas, or at least discovering these islands off the coast of america and it's massive this thing it's absolutely huge and um it's built in the sort of shape of a cross and then on the top of it 
there are 157 lights that shoot up into the air. And so it looks like a huge beam of light going into the sky at night time. So it has these huge number of lights and apparently another light, a rotating light that's even bigger that can be seen from space. <laughs> but because the Dominican Republic is a pretty poor country, they actually only ever turn these lights on twice a year. I think one is on the birthday of Christopher Columbus and the second one is, I think, on Christmas Eve. <laughs> anyway, this thing, what's curious about it, it was designed back in 1931 by a Scottish architect called G.L. Gleave, Joseph Gleave. But it then doesn't actually get built and completed till about 1992. It has this sort of long history where they start trying to build it and then run out of money. And because all the nations of the Americas were meant to contribute to this thing to get it built. And, you know, you can imagine some of them did and some of them didn't. You know, the USA did, but then others don't. So this leads to this rather stop-start construction over all these years. <laughs> and it eventually gets built. And I don't know, it's just a real curiosity. For the rest of his career, Joseph Gleave goes on to carry on as a... Sounds a bit unkind, but everyday architect designing, let's say, not quite so auspicious or impressive structures like uh, libraries and hospital wings and um, public buildings council offices and that in scotland i can't say that his later buildings were quite as <laughs> impressive as uh, this columbus lighthouse apparently the competition which was run way back in 1931 about 400 entries were put in including those by very famous architects like frank lloyd wright but old Joseph Gleaves' one was the one that won and was the one that was eventually built. And inside it, it's kind of like a grey building, very austere-looking, I would describe it. I think it's mainly made with sort of a concrete facade, so there's sort of panels of concrete. But inside it, there is a museum, and it also houses a altarpiece, which are meant to contain the remains of Columbus. So I think it's probably about half his body. Whether it's the top half or the bottom half, I don't know. They haven't actually done DNA testing on these remains that are in the Dominican Republic. So this is the thing. There's a, this is sort of dispute of where, where um, his remains are. They've sort of scientifically proven that the bits and bobs of him that are in Seville are him, but we don't know whether the ones in the Columbus Lighthouse really are. I think they could be quite interesting that William mentions he sees them in a memorial in Havana because there's not a huge amount known about that so William confirms that they were at one time in Havana they could have easily got moved back to San Domingo anyway and uh, I just think it's curious that this thing is built and apparently it's in a fairly dodgy area of San Domingo as well so put it this way if you're going there as a tourist keep your wallet close to your chest <laughs> um but it's this huge thing that, you know, as I say, the lights supposedly can be seen from space. I just thought, you'd never hear of that. And this sort of connection with this Scottish architect as well. Whether it's worth a visit, I don't know. As I say, it's built on the shape of cross. Inside it is this uh, area where there's a shrine, slightly more old-fashioned memorial where the actual remains are preserved. And apparently once a year, the remains get taken out and are displayed behind a glass screen probably at that time maybe to coincide with Columbus's birthday. All this uh, Harold Columbus, who really most of his journeys did involve this area of the Atlantic, I suppose you'd call it, the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico, and not so much the actual mainland mass of America itself. And, of course, the legacy of Columbus is very controversial. Disease, genocide, you could call it. Certainly, he has a very mixed and not sometimes favourable reputation as a governor of the area that he discovered in terms of uh, the subsequent things that happened, particularly to the indigenous people of the area after his involvement with discovering them. They weren't discovered, were they? They were always there. He just visited from Europe for the first time. Google the Columbus Lighthouse, and you'll see, you'll see this really quite curious building. So I just wanted to touch on it because of the remains. And as I say, it is quite interesting. William refers to seeing them in Havana. But then they subsequently had this very complicated history. Mm -hmm.
Right, I'm going to stop here at this point in the journal and the podcast because basically it's an appropriate place to finish given the next events that will happen, which is uh, basically in the next episode, William returns to Milan and he uh, actually does his first driving of one of the locomotives on the railway. So I thought it'd be good to finish at this point. And also in terms of the length of the podcast, it would go on a bit. (laughs) So this episode is a bit dominated by Pavia and Genoa and the things relating to it. And uh, Christopher Columbus, as I say, you do get taken down these rabbit holes of history at times. But there we are. That's the joy of doing the podcast because it does send you down all these avenues aside from the ones that William's specifically talking about sometimes. So just really want to wrap it up. As I said before at the beginning of the podcast, um, you can contact me through all the ways on social media that I mentioned, such as Twitter, Scott of the Historic at 3G Grand Tour, etc., etc. Uh, actually, there's a Facebook page as well, which is at Grand Tour with my great great granddad. And um, that's it, really. So, as I say, yeah, the next episode is uh, going to be the beginnings of William's work on the railway. He doesn't go into a huge amount of detail about it, but it's certainly very interesting. As you go on through the journals, the sort of accounts of incidents that happen on the railway are more the sort of thing that he focuses on rather than the day-to-day aspects of it. So I hope you do enjoy that. Incidentally, I am hoping to do a episode with a railway historian, Anthony, who's uh, very kindly agreed to do an interview with me about this period of railway history, and uh, he's a real expert on this particular period of the railway. So um, that is going to be coming up shortly, I hope. So that will certainly be interesting to kind of give you a wider context, I suppose, of the technological developments that were happening in steam at this time. So that's really it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'll be a little bit honest, perhaps not that much going on, but it was a difficult one. I included some history there. As I've said before, sometimes I do occasionally edit small bits of the journal out just because of repetition and stuff. And I was sort of going to do that with a bit of stuff that William had written about the history of Genoa, but in the end, I didn't. So, uh, (laughs) And actually, as I say, his summary of it is accurate. If you read Wikipedia now, you'd pretty well get exactly the same rundown of historical events of Genoa. So... uh, Either William was making very good notes or he must have been looking at, I think, some sort of reference book himself. Anyway, that is the end of this episode. If you have been, thanks for listening. (laughs) 